0: Get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on go to dobbs.com for money-saver tire and service deals today. Dobbs, with 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Recently, I was telling Carrie and Matthew about the most recent and pro basketball team we had in St. Louis. It was the Spirits of St. Louis and they only lasted for a couple of years, but Even though they only lasted for two years, they're iconic and legendary, and people have such incredible memories of them. And one of the reasons that they're iconic and legendary is because Bob Costas started his professional career as the voice of the Spirits of St. Louis on KMOX. And so I texted Bob the other night, hey, and I said, hey, I'd love to have you come on and and talk spirits and tell some spirits stories. And Bob is with us now on 101 ESPN. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Randy, and as I told you at the time, it was coincidental that you text me when you did because I was in the midst of being interviewed for a documentary about the history of the ABA, and they're going to give a whole long section of it. It's four or five parts, so they've got four or five hours uh, to let it spin out, and they're going to devote a considerable portion of it to the spirits because, as I've said before and others have noted, if there was one team, that captured much of what was glorious and much of what was absurd and ridiculous about the ABA. It was definitely the Spirits.
2: So when you talk about absurd, can you just get into some of the stories? I watched the the, the thirty for thirty free spirits free spirits yeah. last night and and Marvin Barnes was one of the main main cogs on there. Can you just talk about some of the outlandish stories that happened with that team?
1: Well, they were outlandish, but they were also true. And there are some that I cannot tell you that are also true. Uh, But Marvin was the signature player on the team. I have no doubt that if Marvin had uh, played to his full potential over a long ABA slash NBA career, if he hadn't been so sadly self-destructive, there is no doubt in my mind that in 1997, when they named the 50 greatest players in NBA history on the occasion of the league's 50th anniversary, that he would have been among them. And then he would have been among the top 75, which they just honored this past year. He was that good. There were times when he was on the floor with Moses Malone or Julius Irving, and he was the best player in that game, the best player on the floor that night. That's how good he was. But he came with other aspects personality. It was hard to dislike him because he was so funny and he wasn't malicious in any way. Uh this story has been told so many times, and especially around Saint Louis, that I would guess that one in every three Saint Louisans could get on randomly with you and tell the story verbatim the way I'm about to tell it, but I was there. So we play the Kentucky Colonels, who were a very good team. They won the second to last uh ABA championship. They had artist Gilmore at center. Dan Issel, uh both Hall of Famers, Louis Dampier, who had the most three-point shots in the history uh, of the ABA, very strong team, and they were coached by Hubie Brown. So we go to Louisville, which, as you know, is drivable from St. Louis, but it happens to be in the Eastern time zone. And teams didn't travel by charter then. They traveled commercially. So we lose the game at Freedom Hall, and the next morning we gather at the airport, and the traveling secretary hands out the itinerary. And it says, TWA flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m. arrive St. Louis, 7.56. And Marvin has the itinerary in his hand. And he could have looked over to Goo Kennedy, or he could have looked to fly Williams, which would have been a bad idea. (laughs) Uh, But instead, he beckons me over, and he drapes an arm over my shoulder, and he looks down at me from more than a foot above me. And he says, bro, bro. Do you see this, bro? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I don't know about you. But as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. (laughs) Now, the thing about that is that some people, when they first heard it, thought, well, Marvin must be dense. No he was actually smart and he knew it was funny and he knew that I would get it and maybe some
0: of these other guys wouldn't <laughs> That's classic. can that's you give me a,
2: a comparison of who his game was like in 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 the NBA that that you could compare him to?
1: boy, that's a good question and I should have thought of that over the years you know guys did not bulk up as much then um, he was he was a lean, maybe 210, 215, 220 max um, at 6'9". At uh, he had quickness. He had a crossover. He had uh, a stop and, and elevate quickly move. He could go left or right. His lateral movement was tremendous. He had an inside game and an outside game. Uh, so whoever m- matches that description then or now, that's who you would compare him to. Kevin but I Durant, maybe, Bob? I'm sorry, who? Kevin Durant that's a That's a reasonable comparison. I mean Kevin is seven feet tall, um, and of course the three pointer is emphasized more now, uh, so that kind of range for a man that size was unheard of then, uh, and even Marvin didn't take many three pointers. I don't remember him taking uh, more than a handful. Steve Jones, the snapper, and Freddie Lewis would take three pointers for us. but you know, I was interviewing Doc Rivers the other day for other reasons, and one of the topics that came up was the reliance now on the three-point shot, when he was a rookie in the NBA, the average number of threes taken in a game by a team was like four. Now the lowest in the league averages in the high 20s, and Golden State is averaging 41 three-point attempts per game. And back in the ABA days, I remember that you were told if somebody shot 30% from three, they were considered to be a good three-point shooter. Uh, eventually it evolved to where guys like Steve Kerr and J.J. Redick and Ray Allen, um, Dale Ellis, Reggie Miller were shooting a much higher percentage than that because it wasn't something you took only in special circumstances. It became something you took in the natural flow of the game.
0: Bob, you mentioned that, at that time in the 70s, teams didn't didn't charter. But one time Marvin did, right? Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> good, good segue into another good story. So we play in New York, which actually was on Long Island then. The, uh, Dr. J and the Nets played in the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And the next morning, Marvin is nowhere to be found for a 7 or 7.30 a.m. flight to Virginia. But that did not shock us, because he often was nowhere to be found. And there was still plenty of time before tip-off at 7.30 or whatever. But apparently, he missed all the subsequent flights. (laughs) Heaven knows what was occupying his time and attentions. Uh, We could speculate, but heaven knows. So in any case, it finally dawns on him, if I'm going to get there in time for the game, I'm going to have to charter my own plane, which he did. Now, I'll tell you how prehistoric this is guys had their duffel bags with their uniforms in the bag so maybe there was a clean uniform waiting in virginia but he had last night's uniform so as the plane is descending into virginia he changes into his uniform so he's got his uniform on beneath his kind of superfly coat that he was wearing at that time and he, he the the guy lands the plane And apparently he he had his car nearby or had a car service or something because the guy accompanies the pilot I'm talking about. The pilot accompanies Marvin to the game. So now it's maybe 10 minutes before tip-off. And the door of the visitor's locker room at the Hampton Roads Coliseum flies open and there's Marvin standing there. Now, I was already courtside ready to broadcast the game, so I'm getting this from the other players, but uh, it's been verified by more than one. (laughs) He parts the coat to reveal his uniform beneath, like Clark Kent opening up his suit to show that he's Superman. He parts the coat, and he goes, Boys, game time is on time. (laughs) (laughs) So the coach, Bob McKinnon, who was kind of a button-down guy, was not the least bit amused. So he benches Marvin for at least the first five, six minutes of the game, during which the pilot of the plane, having now figured out that Marvin may not be the most responsible person on the planet, he is now behind the bench demanding immediate payment. So Marvin sends the trainer back into the locker room. He reemerges with Marvin's checkbook, and during a timeout, Marvin is like, yeah, who do I make this out to, man? So we signed the check to the guy, right? But here's the kicker. He scored 41 and had 19 boards and didn't even play the whole game.
0: Unbelievable. Um, hey, Bob, when, when you were going through this, because it was your first job, did you appreciate the wackiness around you, or did you think, oh, this is just pro sports, this is the way it is? How, how are you taking all of this in?
1: You know, that's a great question because actually it was my second job. My first job was calling minor league hockey in Syracuse while I was still a senior at Syracuse University for the princely sum of 30 bucks a game and $5 a day meal money on the road. Now, why is this noteworthy? Because it's the old Eastern Hockey League, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot is based on. And I knew a lot of guys who were extras in the movie. And in fact... The Johnstown Jets had a winger named Ned Dowd and his sister, Nancy Dowd, wrote the screenplay based on what she had observed about life in the low minor leagues. And if you've ever seen that movie, and I'm guessing you have, there's, uh, there's a, a guy in the movie called Goldie something or other, uh, but he's, he's modeled after Bill Harpo Goldthorpe, who played for the Syracuse Blazers. And was the greatest and craziest enforcer in the history of hockey. It was a bad game for him if he didn't get to in, into at least two fights. And we had games stopped by riots where the police had to show up, I and mean, all this kind of crazy stuff. So that was experience one. The spirits, spirits are experience two. Now, by the time the spirits. Are gone. They don't get into the ABA-NBA merger. I'm 24 years old, and I've been to the circus and back twice. (laughs) I know it's nuts. I know it's nuts. Now I just remembered the name of the guy in in Slapshot. It's Ogie Oglethorpe, Mm -hmm. but it's he's actually based on Bill Harpo Goldthorpe. Anyway, so by the time I'm 24 years old, I do have a sense that these two experiences were crazy, but I have nothing else to compare it to. And now here we are some 50 years down the road or close to it, and yeah, there's been nothing to compare it to.
2: Hey, Bob, can you talk about the uh, the ownership of Ozzie and Daniel Silna when they were yes. uh, trying to get into the merger in the NBA and, and how they all, how that all unfolded and, and how they ended up making out pretty well for themselves despite not being, being uh, uh, owners of an NBA team?
1: They sure did, and I was just with Dan Silna uh, the night before last because we were both being interviewed for this upcoming ABA documentary. His older brother, Ozzie, has since passed away, and Danny still insists and did so on camera that they would trade whatever riches they experienced out of the deal that I'll explain in a minute if they just could have gotten into the NBA. They loved basketball. They were knowledgeable basketball fans uh, who then bought the team, which had been the Carolina Cougars, and then moved to St. Louis. Uh they acquired a lot of talent, it seldom coalesced into a winning team, but we did have a lot of talent on the team, and they really wanted to get into the NBA. Uh, but the NBA only wanted to take four teams. And the viable teams in terms of attendance as the ABA limped to the finish line were Indiana, San Antonio, Denver, and the Nets because of Dr. J. But as soon as the merger happened, their owner Roy Bowe was so deep in debt He had to sell Dr. J to the 76ers, which actually helped the league because the 76ers were a strong team and it allowed them to showcase Dr. J. So there was no way the spirits were going to get in. The other teams reached various settlements because the NBA didn't want an antitrust suit. So there were various ways that the other teams were satisfied. But the spirits were smarter. They said, wait a second. If we were in the NBA we'd be entitled to a cut of the national television revenue, wouldn't we? Yes. Well, there were seven ABA teams at the end. The last season began with ten, and three of them folded before the season was over. So when it ended, there were only seven. And three didn't get in. The Spirits were one of them. So they said, wait a second. What if we got one-seventh of the national television revenue that would come to these other four teams? Would that be fair? And the NBA guy said, yeah. We guess so, because at that point, each team was getting, I don't know, maybe a million dollars a year, if that, out of national television revenue. But then the spirit's attorney asked for another clause, and they accepted that too. And that clause was in perpetuity, (laughs) After, after which the NBA on CBS with Bird and Magic in the 80s Then the NBA on NBC with Michael Jordan and the Constellation of Stars all around the league. The Dream Team in 92 in Barcelona. Wait a minute, David Stern's taking the game global. It's all over the world. Who knows if someday there might be NBA games televised on Pluto in (laughs) perpetuity, okay? So these guys bought the team for maybe $3 million. Danny Sullivan was saying the other night, it might have been only a million. I don't know. I've heard $3 million. Let's say it's three. By the time the NBA finally waved a white flag of surrender and said, look, how do we end this thing? And they bought them out. They had collected about a billion (laughs) dollars. (laughs) Wow. No overhead, no player salaries. No no travel costs, no office costs. Just walk to the mailbox and pick up the check.
0: <laughs> Not too bad. <laughs> Bob Costas with us on 101 ESPN reminiscing about the Spirits of St. Louis. By the way, there, Bob, there's another ABA, and there's a team here in St. Louis called the St. Louis Spirits. I guess Spirits of St. Louis is protected. It's registered, but there is a St. Louis Spirits team playing in a new NBA, a minor league, here in St. Louis.
1: So is it a minor league of the NBA, like part of the G League or something like that? It's not
0: like the G League. It's not connected to the NBA at all. But it's like a 40-team league in in markets throughout uh, the country. And uh, they they play at Harris Stowe. And apparently the team does pretty well.
1: So... St. Louis has an ABA team, and it's going to have another XFL team.
0: That's correct.
1: Yeah. <laughs> St. Lu- St. Louis is down for the craziness.
0: <laughs> we we love it. Hey, I want you to tell the story because you've told it publicly before. You were a young broadcaster who took flights for granted, and yes. you missed a flight, right? Was that to another oh, Kentucky game? Yeah,
1: yes, I did. No, it was Memphis. Okay. And it was a Friday afternoon. And I remember that game time in Memphis was 8 o'clock, later than games usually start now. Uh, but here was my situation. I didn't have any money. Uh, KMOX was paying me $11,000 a year to call the Spirits games and to do whatever Bob Hyland wanted me to do beyond that in the offseason. And if I had $11,000, I would have paid them to be able to do the games. That's all I cared about. I was thrilled. But I didn't have anything in reserve. I didn't have any credit cards or anything. So now it's Friday. So now it's payday. So I go down to KMOX, because we're going to Memphis, then we're going to San Antonio and I think Utah before we come back. And I don't even have the concept of an expense account or anything in my head. I need some cash. So I, I go upstairs at KMOX to the sixth floor. I get the check, which after taxes was $157 and some, some change beyond that, $157. And then I walk across the street to Boatman's Bank, which was on the corner, and I cash the check. So now I'm I'm really feeling flush. I got 157 bucks in my pocket, and I'm going to drive the Ford Pinto that I purchased at Dave Sinclair Ford, one of the great vehicles in the history of uh, of American motor in, motor industry. And I'm driving to Lambert, and a thunderstorm hits, and everything's backed up. And I tend to cut things close, Randy, as you may remember. <laughs> you know, security wasn't what it. Became at airports, and you could kind of show up and get on the plane if you had a ticket. Uh, but I didn't make it. Okay, so now the next flight isn't until 5 o'clock. And like an idiot, instead of just staying at Lambert, I circle back to KMOX, and I'm sitting in the sports office. And Jack Buck walks in and goes, Isn't there a game tonight, kid? And I said, Well, yeah, yeah, but I'll, I'll get there. I got a 5 o'clock flight. I'll be there in plenty of time. It's just a 45-minute flight. He goes... What if the flight is late? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, it, it, won't, it won't be late. Oh, but it was. So <laughs> I, I drive back to Lambert, and another thunderstorm hits, and the plane is, in fact, delayed. So now I'm on the plane, right? It's descending into Memphis, and I'm looking at my watch. It's like 730. It's 740. We get on the ground, and I bolt for a cab. And I'm, I'm sweating, and I'm thinking, my gosh, I'll be back in Syracuse tomorrow. <laughs> I've screwed up the greatest opportunity anybody could ever have. And so I get to the arena, and the game is underway. And I rush to the, to the courtside seat where I'd call the game, and Harry Weltman, who was the president of the team, is sitting there, and he's fuming. If it was a cartoon, there'd be steam coming out of his ears. <laughs> and back at KMOX, the late, great Bill Wilkerson has been on the air claiming that we have technical difficulties. (laughs) There are technical difficulties... In Memphis, and as soon as we straighten them out, uh, we'll have the spirits versus the Memphis sounds. And when he told me about it later, he said there are technical difficulties. I said, Well, that wasn't really true. He goes, Yes, it was, because technically you're an idiot. So, <laughs> so now I call the game, right? And, and there's a certain feeling, first of dread and terror, but then of defiance. This is going to be the greatest broadcast ever, and they'll realize it's a terrible mistake. Even though I screwed up and I was late for the game, they, they never should have fired me, even though I know they will. Okay. So now the game is over, and we go back to the hotel, and there's a group of players gathered uh, in the lobby uh, for a post game snack or something, and they beckon me over, and I sit down, and I tell them my tale of woe. And Gus Gerard says, Well, what'll they do? Fine you? I go, this isn't like, no, they don't fine a broadcaster. They, they might suspend him. They might fire him. this is not, not, not like being fined for being late to practice. And then Marvin Barnes naturally says, bro, don't worry. I'm going to say it just like he said it. If they fire your sorry little ass, I've been looking for a little white dude to drive my Rolls Royce. LAUGHTER so you, so you have a fallback position. <laughs> because I'll get you a little suit with one of those hats. <laughs> so. So now the team the team flies on to San Antonio, but Bob Highland has sent word that I must immediately fly back to St. Louis on the first flight in the morning and meet him at his office. And it was a Saturday morning, but even on Saturdays, as you may remember, Randy, yep. Mr. Highland showed up in the wee hours of the morning on Saturdays. He uh, took it easy. He left at noon. And he wore a sweater. Uh, as opposed, yeah. As opposed
0: to the suit, right?
1: Right. That's right. Saturday was a casual day for him. So I have to sheepishly walk into his office. And he liked me. He saw something in me, despite my immaturity and dopiness. And he actually said this. He said, you know, I should fire you. And there are people here who want me to fire you. But I won't, because you're a nice young man, and I think you have potential. (laughs) But, again, I'm quoting verbatim. I don't know why he put it this way. He said, but if you ever do anything like this again, I will cut your ears off. <laughs> <laughs> what, he wants to turn me into Vincent Van Gogh? <laughs> 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 this is quite a threat. <laughs> so now, so now I have to get on the plane to San Antonio. So I get on the plane to San Antonio. We played the Spurs. As I recollect, we lost. Okay, so now Maurice Lucas says, let's go to dinner. So Luke and a couple of other guys and me, we go to dinner. All right, and we're at this place, and this is the fall of 1974. Okay, and we look at the at the it was seafood place, and we look at the menu, and there's actually an item on the menu, Zairean oysters. Now Muhammad Ali had just defeated George Foreman in Zaire like a month before that. So I say, even though I don't like oysters. In honor of Muhammad Ali, I'm ordering the Zairean oysters. and Everybody thinks that's a great idea because I'm the one who has to eat them. Okay. So, so I have the Zairean oysters. The next day on the flight to Salt Lake City, I have the worst case of food poisoning oh, no. in history. Okay. The one and only time I've ever reached for the barf bag on a, on a plane. And the players, again, think my plight is hysterical. First, I missed the flight to Memphis. I almost get fired. Now I got food poisoning. Plus, plus Lucas, as a gag, pretended to have gone to the men's room and left and stuck me with the check. Oh, no. <laughs> he had a six-figure contract. I was making 11 grand. <laughs> he paid me back subsequently. It was a practical
0: joke. But... Yeah, the, the, that 157 went away in a hurry.
1: Yeah, I was, I, I was penniless, by the the. the time I got
0: to Salt Lake City. (laughs) Hey, Bob, uh, because of the names that you've mentioned, if somehow the Silners would have succeeded in getting that franchise into the NBA, how good do you think the Spirits could have been in the NBA in the following years? And I'm presuming that the Barnes probably would not have been a viable part of the team. But they had a lot of pretty good players in that last year.
1: Oh, they did. Uh, Freddie Lewis was one of the great guards in the history of the ABA, Ron Boone was a terrific player, mostly with Utah, but when the uh, Utah Stars folded in the middle of that last season, there was a dispersal draft, and we got Ron Boone and Moses Malone from Utah. So at various times, although after we got Malone, um, Lucas got traded to Kentucky for Caldwell Jones, who was an accomplished center. So at various times, we had Maurice Lucas, we had Marvin Barnes, who was the best of all of them. We had Moses Malone, we had Freddie Lewis, we had... Don Chaney, who had been an important part of Celtics championship teams in the backcourt with JoJo White in the 70s, a defensive ace, we had him, and I'm probably forgetting some other players of consequence. The only thing was that they seldom were able to really come together as a team. They did at the end of the first season. Dr. J and the Nets had played the Spirits 11 times in that inaugural season for St. Louis and beat them all 11. And the luck of the draw was that the Spirits, who were the last playoff qualifier, drew the Nets in the first round of the playoffs, lost a close first game in New York, and then won the next four in a row. Marvin was great. Freddie Lewis was great. They just outplayed them, won the next four in a row. During that period of time, they not only were talented, they were playing smart Team basketball, and that was the only time when decent crowds showed up at the arena. We'd get ten, eleven thousand 11,000 for the couple of games there against the Nets, and then the next round against Kentucky. We were holding our own. I say we. I was calling the game. I was nowhere near playing in the game. But the Spirits were holding their own until Freddie Lewis twisted his ankle in Game 4. They were on their way to tying the Series 2-2, but they wound up losing the Series to Kentucky, which went on to beat Indiana for the championship. So that's how good they were for about a month. That one season, but they were never able to replicate that. There was it was a you know it's often a case the case in basketball a a great collection of talent, but it doesn't cohere as a team.
0: Bob Costas, so great to have you with us, and such great memories from your broadcasting career in the early portion of it. And I want to say this, and I thought about this after I talked to you the other night. As a young broadcaster, I produced for Bob Costas Sports Open Line at KMOX, and on a regular basis. Bob would validate me by, and I knew you knew the answer, but if I would put up on that board like Mike Pagliarulo started for the Yankees at third base, you'd say Randy Carricker had that fact. And when you said it to the listenership, people thought, oh, Randy Carricker must know what he's talking about. And you were always so good to me as a young broadcaster and so many other young broadcasters. And on behalf of all of us that have benefited from your largesse, we really do appreciate it and you.
1: Thank you, Randy. That's very nice of you to say. I appreciate it.
0: Have a great day. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time, and we'll talk soon. And by the way, you and the family have a happy Thanksgiving.
1: Same to you, Randy, and everybody out there listening. Thanks. Take care. care. (laughs) Care. Bye.
0: That is the great Bob Costas with us on 101 ESPN. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris
2: Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama.